Please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. We are making our way slowly, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Matthew. And we have made our way to a challenging, fascinating in some ways, and in some ways terrifying text. Uh, we've never, I don't think we've taught on this text before in, since our church began, but this is the, something called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin. I'm sure we've, many of us have heard of this or thought about it or wondered about what this is or what this means. Hopefully we will have some light uh, shed today as we study this passage. Uh, let me read the text for us. It's Matthew chapter 12, verses 12 to, excuse me, verses 22 to 32. And this again is the word of the Lord, Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come." Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, there, there is no question that this is a weighty uh, passage, and we do not want to misunderstand this text of Scripture. The implications are, are too dire and too serious to, to handle this the wrong way. So God, I pray for mercy for all of us as we think about this text, that we would see what's really here in these words. Your divinely inspired, infallible, and inerrant words, and that we would get a better grasp of the meaning, that we would take in the warning, that we would respond appropriately with tremendous uh, earnestness for Jesus, and a repentance of sin, and a, and a desperate faith uh, that clings to Him for acceptance before You, and for the joy of knowing You through the person of Your Son. God, I pray that it would be true that no one in this room, no one within the sound of my voice would ever uh, be guilty of this heinous and dreadful sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled the sermon, The Unforgivable Sin, Blasphemy Against the Holy Spirit, and 
I've got three points. The three points are in the group me, if you're on the church group me, but I'll give them to you now. They're, they're long, so it's maybe a little hard to write down if you're trying to jot them down quickly. I think they're on the screen here. Okay, great. They're on the screen as well behind me. Number one, uh, Jesus is accused of being in league with Satan. It's verses 22 to 24. Jesus is accused of being in league with Satan. Point number two, Jesus counters the accusation with several arguments verses 25 to 29. He counters the accusation that he's in league with Satan with several arguments. And then finally, uh, verses 30 to 32, Jesus really turns the tables on his opponents, the Pharisees, and Jesus warns his enemies of the unforgivable sin, verses 30 to 32. Now, it's common for me when I'm preaching to spend more time on my first point than sometimes on my later points. Today, it will be the opposite. I will definitely be spending the majority of my time, I hope, on the, on the third point since there's so much controversy and there's a lot to unpack and we want to get this right, at least as close to, uh, to, to correct as we possibly can. So let's begin with uh, the first point. I'm gonna, I want to give a quick introduction here. Uh, last Sunday's sermon, if you were here, uh, the text was a, a comforting and encouraging text like there are few like it. A bruised reed he will not break, uh, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And we saw the tenderness of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus to those who are struggling. Well, in context, we have a very different theme in the very next paragraph. This sermon has a very different feel because I want the sermons each week, and I always fail, but I always want the sermon to have as its main point and idea the main point of the passage, and I want the feel or mood of the sermon to match the feel or mood of the passage. Does that make sense? So if the text is comforting, I would hope the sermon is comforting. If the text is a warning, the sermon's going to have a little bit of an edge to it, a little bit of a warning to it, and that's certainly going to be the case, I, I, I hope, today. So just keep that in mind. Uh, if you want to jot down to look at later or in another context for parallel texts for our passage, you can look at Luke 11 and 12 and Mark chapter 3. Luke 11 and 12 has a parallel and Mark chapter 3, very similar verses to what we have here in Matthew chapter 12. Let's start with point number one. Jesus is accused of being in league with Satan. Let's reread these verses. Let's start with verse 22, the miracle that causes this whole situation to unfold. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? So it's, it's another classic sort of miracle that we see Jesus perform. I want it to be noted, it's very interesting. There is never a debate with Jesus' enemies about whether Jesus actually performed the miracles. That's not what's being debated here. What's being debated is the source behind these miracles. What supernatural source? But that Jesus was doing supernatural deeds was indisputable. It was irrefutable. There were tens of thousands of people over the course of a few years who personally witnessed not just the feeding of the 5,000, but many other miracles that Jesus performed. This was not done in a corner, as it's said in the book of Acts. This was not hidden in a corner. This was publicly done and publicly demonstrated. So this man who is demon-oppressed or possessed is unable to see or speak, and when Jesus casts out the demon, he is once again in his right mind, able to see and speak. The people are amazed. They ask if this is the son of David. I don't want to make too much of this, because this could be, I'm not sure, you test this in your own thinking, but a commentator pointed this out. I thought that's at least worth pursuing a little bit. So they say, is he the son of David? Is he the Messiah? You know, I hadn't thought about this connection, but the commentator, point, a commentator pointed out, remember when Saul the king 
had the Spirit of God left him, and remember a tormenting spirit came upon him, who did he call to get ease from the demonic spirit? It was David. David came with his harp, remember, and played beautiful music in the presence of Saul as a young boy. And as that happened, it says in uh, 1 Samuel 16, 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if there's a connection here. The son of David casts out demons. That reminds us of David, who when he played music, the, the, the harmful spirit left Saul. Perhaps. I don't want to push too much there, but there could be a connection in that text. Let's see here uh, more about what Jesus is doing. It is indisputably supernatural. When it comes to the supernatural realm, think from a biblical first century Jewish mindset. When, when you're dealing with the supernatural, and by the way, that was not a debate. I know in our culture, people, people don't even know if they believe in a supernatural spirit or soul or angel or demon. In the first century Jewish world, this was not up for discussion. Uh, Sadducees would be skeptical of these things, but amongst the mainstream, this was not up for discussion. Here is what you would know. The supernatural world is as real as you and I, and here's what the debate was. If someone is doing something clearly and definitively supernatural and miraculous, the source has to be from one of two sides. There is no one thinking that supernatural deeds are neutral in first century Jewish world. No one is thinking of neutral supernatural deeds. It's either a good deed coming from God, the angelic realm, or it is an evil supernatural deed coming from the realm of the demons. You think of Moses, right? When he performed the mighty signs from God, did Pharaoh have his men who could perform signs that could match him for a while? Yes. And so you had the Spirit of God and you had the dark side, right? You had the, the evil side. But that Jesus is, is doing things from the supernatural world is not questionable. The question is, what is the source? And that's the debate with the Pharisees. Is this coming from God or is this coming from the evil, wicked, demonic realm? That is what they are disputing here. I just want us to keep in mind that is still true today. There is no such thing as a neutral supernatural experience. The, the people today sometimes, there is a, I don't want to go on a tangent here, there is a growing thing in our culture with witchcraft and incantation and these dark magic type things. There's a, there's a real growing movement in our culture today, especially with younger people. And I think, just this is uh, an educated guess, I think that because we have largely removed God and Christ from the scene, we want something to fill the void that gives us a sense of something beyond and something transcendent, and so we're reaching for the wrong thing so often to do that. But there is no such thing as neutrality in the supernatural realm. This is either coming from the divine, almighty, triune God, or it is coming from the other side, the kingdom of darkness. There is no neutrality when it comes to the supernatural. Please bear this in mind. We test it by God's Word. We want to know that it is in line with God's Scripture. We want to know that it is coming from God's Spirit as He moves upon us. We do not want to play around with the other side when it comes to supernatural things. And these people think Jesus is coming from the demonic realm. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, we're used to the word, we've heard it in Bible language, Beelzebul. You've probably also heard the word Beelzebub, right? Let me just give a quick background on what that word even means, because we don't often think about the background. Just real quick here. So, Jesus, they call Jesus, uh, they say he's working with Beelzebub, it's by Beelzebub, Beelzebul. Real quick, here's what we think the background is. Okay, you remember Baal, the Philistine god in the Old Testament? How you actually pronounce Baal in the original language is Baal, Okay. 
And in the, in the book of 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 3, here's what you hear. Is, so this is what the prophet says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal uh, Zebub, the God of Ekron? So Ekron is in the heart of Philistine territory. Baal Zebub is a name for the Philistine god Baal, okay? That, that's where this word comes from. And it means uh, Lord of the Heights or Lord of the, Lord of the High Places. And the author of 2 Kings, we think, commentators think, deliberately misspells his name. This is why. Instead of calling him uh, Beelzebul, which means Baal the Exalted One or Lord of Exaltation, he changes one letter. Instead of Beelzebul, Baal the Exalted, he changes it to Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies, which you probably have heard that title. So this is a mockery saying, okay, you think you're Lord Exalted, you're actually Lord of the Flies. This is a mockery against the satanic or demonic God of the Philistines, okay? So that's the background of that word. As it comes into the Jewish world, Baalzebul or Baalzebub becomes another word they use for the demonic realm and especially the prince of demons, that's Satan. Okay, does that make sense? That's where this is coming from in the background. Uh, and so they're clearly referring to Satan, the prince of demons. Let me move to point number two of the sermon. Jesus counters the accusation with several arguments. Look at verses 25 and following. Jesus is going to give some counter arguments. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, He's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Now, this is simply a logical, common sense counter-argument that Jesus is making. It's very simple. I don't really even have to explain it. Jesus is simply saying, listen, Satan is evil, but don't forget that he's also cunning. Remember, we know the first verse about Satan in the Bible. The serpent was more crafty than all the other animals the Lord God had made. He is as evil as you can be, but he's not stupid in the sense. He, he is very crafty, very clever, very wise in, in the evil sense, cunning. Satan is not going to start a civil war against Satan. He's not going to put his demons against other demons. Satan is not going to tear down his own kingdom from the inside. Satan is not about that. He hates God so much. He hates God's purposes so much. He's not going to help God out by starting a civil war with demons. That's going to do nothing but advance God's kingdom. Satan is not going to do that. He is not going to divide his house. He's not going to bring a civil war. He's not going to destroy what he's trying to do. No, he is going to have a united front in evil, and he is going to attack God's kingdom. He's not going to attack himself. So, Jesus is saying, the fact that I just healed a man who could not see or speak, the fact that I just cast demons out of this man, does that sound like something Satan would do? No. Satan is not here to help. He is here to hurt. He's not here to uh, destroy his kingdom. He's here to advance his kingdom. It's just common sense. Satan is not opposed to Satan. He's opposed to God. That, that makes sense, right? That's just a, a common sense sort of argument. Number two, it's a little bit trickier to understand verse 27. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, we, won't, we don't want to get lost on this topic. Josephus, this is where everyone takes a nap. When, it, when you say Josephus, you can just feel everyone get, get comfortable. Uh, Josephus was a first century non-Christian Jewish historian, right? A Pharisee. He was born a little bit after the crucifixion. I think around 37 AD, lived about 110 or something AD. It's an amazing resource to read about the first century from an intelligent but non-Christian Jewish man who was there for a lot of events that happened uh, around the New Testament era. Now, 
he tells us that there were a lot of Jewish exorcists at this time. You say, what? Yeah, there were a lot of Jewish people who would go around and at least claim to cast out demons. And we have one example in Acts, I think it's chapter 19, the seven sons of Sceva, do you remember? They go in to cast out the demon, they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, get out of here. And the demon says, well, we, we know Jesus and we've heard of Paul, who are you guys? Uh, and they beat them bloody and naked and the men ran out of the street. I just, that's, that, that had to make the local headline news, right? Seven sons of Sceva running naked down the road away from a demon-possessed man. That's an interesting headline. It says the news went all out throughout the city of Ephesus. These guys are like, we finally became famous. This is not the way we wanted to do it. So they, they, had, their, they had their 15 minutes of fame there. So there was a thing called Jewish itinerant exorcists. That's what Acts calls them. They were traveling around, at least attempting to cast out demons, and we see not always very successfully. Okay, we got that. So, even the Pharisees had their, their sons, this means their disciples, their protégés, their, the people who were being trained under them. Even some of them were claiming to cast out demons, and maybe they were, maybe they weren't. It's hard to know what was happening, but here's what we know. Jesus says, hey, why the double standard? If you're supporting your disciples casting out demons, why is it you assume that my casting out of demons is coming from Satan? That seems like a double standard. Your own sons are going to judge you. Why not use the same standard you use against me, against your own disciples? You see, that's, that's kind of the argument he's using there. And now uh, we move into the next argument. Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, do you see the logical progression? Let's, let's follow. In the supernatural realm, you're either the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness, right? They are accusing him of being the kingdom of darkness. He just disproved that. Yes, he said, this is not the act of Satan. Satan wouldn't do this to himself. I'm helping people, not hurting them. Your own disciples claim to cast out demons. Why are you against me? He's showing inconsistency. Okay, if I'm not in league with Satan, who do I have to be in league with? The Spirit of God. So now, it's the Spirit of God by whom I'm casting out demons. And if that's true, if I am casting out demons by God's Spirit, then you guys cannot argue anymore. God's kingdom is breaking into the present right now, right here, because I'm the king, and wherever the king is, the kingdom is, and the kingdom of God is breaking forth right in front of you. There's no denying it. Now, do you see, this is going to help us in a second understand the unforgivable sin, because what you're dealing with is people who have no excuse. The evidence is staring them in the face. They are eyewitnesses to the work of what could only be God's spirit, could only be God working. They have no way to say this is really satanic, and yet they're going to try to anyway. Do you see how we're moving towards what the unforgivable sin is? So let's see here what Jesus says. He says, the kingdom of God, by the spirit of God, I cast out demons. In Luke's version, the phrase is used, the finger of God. By the finger of God, I cast out demons. Let me just mention this here. I mentioned the magicians in Exodus. Listen to this. This is Exodus 8, 18 and 19. Listen to this. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Remember, they could no longer imitate the signs through Moses. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians, now this is the, the wicked magicians who are into all this dark magic stuff, okay? This is them speaking. They say to Pharaoh, this, what Moses is doing, is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I think we're getting in Pharaoh something very close to, if not identical with, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin. 
Does Pharaoh have undisputable evidence in front of him that the finger of God is working in his midst through the plagues? Even his own magicians through their demonic arts cannot reproduce what's happening. Even they say, we can't do this. This is God's finger at work. And Pharaoh says, I don't care what you say. I'm not letting the people go. Do you see what he's doing? He is against clear, indisputable evidence saying, I don't care. I want nothing to do with this God. Do you see? That's a clue, I think, for what's happening in this text. So Tom Schreiner says, the finger of God signifies a clear and definitive work of God. Now let's talk about the strong man who is bound. I love this. How can someone enter a strong man's house, plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may indeed plunder his house. Okay, you, you could probably figure the metaphor out. Satan is the strong man. His house represents, in some sense, the world. Yes, God is ultimately sovereign over Satan, but Satan does have limited jurisdiction here. He's called the God of this age, lowercase g. In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, he's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work, and the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2. Satan has a limited jurisdiction. He's got a leash, but he's got a real leash that, that, that God has given him. And so as Satan here, he's the strong man, and he has his household, which is the earth, the world in a sense. And his goods are people who are born dead in sin, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the sons of disobedience, who are all by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is referring to people who are under the blinding leadership of Satan, which by the way, that was all of us on birth. We were all of us, in that sense, the belongings of the strong man in his house. Do you get the metaphor here? So Jesus says, there is no way you're kicking in the front door of a strong man's house and plundering his home while he's standing there. He is not going to let you do that. He is going to stop you. A strong man will prevent you from plundering his goods. So Jesus said, guess what I've come to do? I have come to put handcuffs on the strong man. I have come to bind the strong man. I am coming here and I'm putting limits on Satan. I am overpowering Satan. I actually ultimately am the one who made all angels and demons, even those who, the angels who fell and those who didn't. I made them all. I am sovereign over them. I'm going to flex right now and show my sovereignty. I'm going to bind Satan and then I'm going to free people. I'm going to plunder his house. I'm going to get people out of chains from demonic uh, darkness. You see the, the metaphor. I'm going to chain, bind Satan. I'm going to plunder his house. Well, let, let's not miss the fact here, and this is a huge point of application. This, I know, to, to our world, what I'm about to say sounds crazy. I, I know, but I believe with all my heart Jesus is speaking the truth here. This is what Jesus is telling us. Every single unbelieving friend, coworker, and family member that you know is bound by the strong man and needs to be set free by Jesus. That may sound strange to some people, but that is absolutely true, and here, here is what the Bible says. When, when it comes to angels and demons, people can get into all kinds of weird stuff. Let, let me just boil it down to the central issue. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God, lowercase g, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan's number one job is not all the stuff you see in these strange movies people make, which I don't recommend watching, and I don't watch, but these demon possession movies and stuff, that's not what Satan's mainly about. What Satan is mainly about, his number one goal in this world, doesn't care if you're rich or if you're possessed or what you are in between, here's what Satan wants from all of you and me. He wants you to be blind to the glory of Jesus. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who's the image of God. As long as you're bored with the gospel, Satan does not care what's happening to you circumstantially. 
If, if he can make you wealthy and get you away from Jesus, he'll do that. If he, if he can get you sick and get you away from Jesus, he, he'll do that. he doesn't care what happens to you circumstantially. He just wants you to not love Jesus, not be enthralled by Jesus, not be focused on Jesus, not want to talk about Jesus, study scripture and pray to Jesus. That's what he wants to stop. Okay, that, that's what Satan is all about. And Jesus says, I'm here to set people free from that blindness and that darkness, and only I can do it, but I can do it to any and all who will turn and trust in my finished work. That, that's, the, that's the good news of what's promised here. All right, now let's move in to the last point. One last thing before I get there. Colossians 2, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame, triumphing over them, I think that's the demonic world especially, through Jesus how he took away our record of debts and nailed it to the cross. The only ultimate weapon Satan has against you is unforgiven sin because he accuses you. He's the accuser. That's what it, his name means, the accuser. And the only way his accusation sticks is if your sin is really yours and it hasn't been forgiven. And so how does God triumph over Satan? He nails your sin to the cross, in which case your sin is real and it's really forgiven, in which case the accuser has no accusation. He's got nothing left to say. He's got nothing he can successfully bring against you because your sins have been taken away and nailed to another. And so you do not have to worry about the accuser. You just, as one pastor said, point him to the blood and step out of the way. Point him to the blood of Christ and step out of the way. All right, point number three, and this is the, this is the more complicated part, I think. Point number three, verse 30. This is Jesus warns his enemies of the unforgivable sin. Verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, I'll just be brief on this. Again, does Jesus allow for neutrality regarding him? There is no such thing as a person who says, oh, Jesus is a decent you know, prophet or person or teacher. He's fine. I, mean, I don't got nothing for him or against him. I'm just neutral. That, Jesus says, does not exist. Because he says here, if you're not with him, you are against him. And if you're not gathering with Jesus, you're scattering. There is no neutrality. You either bow down and call him Lord, Savior, and God, or you're against him. That's what Jesus is saying. Those are, those are amazing claims and true claims. Now, let's get into the, to the, to the particular issue of the unforgivable sin. Verse 31 and 32. I'm going to read it probably a few times as we go, just so we don't miss anything. Verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay, this is not by any means the main point of this text, but I just need to say this. Anyone who argues that the Holy Spirit is not equally a member of the Trinity and eternally and co-equally God with the Father and the Son, this hasn't read this text. Because do you see the incredible thing here? To blaspheme against the Spirit is an eternal sin. It's an unforgivable sin. What higher status could the Holy Spirit have than the status Jesus gives to the Holy Spirit here? So that's clear, but let's, let's get into the details of what's happening here. So what is the unforgivable sin? Uh, the question that we all probably have, I, I think it's maybe true of newer Christians, but, but probably also older Christians as well, have I committed this sin? What exactly is this sin? 
Maybe you think back to earlier in life, you said, I said some blasphemous thing one time. I was joking around, I, 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 I said something, I wasn't even a Christian yet, but I blasphemed God, I, I cursed in God's name, or I said something absolutely appalling that I wouldn't even ever repeat. Was that it? Did I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And if that's true, is it true that no matter what happens in my life, no matter how much I repent and trust in Christ, am I just doomed to hell? Is there no way out? Is that true? I'm going to say that's not true, but people who get caught up in that thinking are in big trouble. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote a book called uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, his autobiography, and he went through a time where he thought he had committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and he was in agony and terror, thinking that no matter what happened, he would die and go to hell. Um, I I want to be sensitive, but uh, we get sometimes emails from just people in in different parts of the country, just at random times, people will email us and ask for prayer or help for whatever reason. And I'm just going to read part of a message we got in September through our email account uh, from a woman. And I'm, I'm cutting out a lot here. I'm just going to read part of it. And Jerry actually called this lady and talked to her. But, but listen to this, quote, uh, I committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is what she said. I committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I am not saved. I grieved the Holy Spirit and now I am going to hell. Please pray for my salvation and that God will allow me one more chance before I die. Please, I disobeyed God. I am not saved. I don't want to go to hell. Please, please pray that God would allow me one more chance. I know I can't earn my salvation by works, and I don't think my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Please, please pray that God will give me another chance and that I will have confirmation by the Holy Spirit. I am not making this up. I don't want to go to hell. Please pray for God's mercy and that I can be saved. Please, I don't want to die without the love of God in my heart. Please. Wow. That was astonishing when you read that, right? Um, By the way, I think that the way she's talking here makes me think she did not commit the sin uh, that she thinks she committed because she says things like, please pray for my salvation, that God would give me one more chance. That's not the way people who've committed this sin talk. Okay, that's a very important point here. So do you see how if you misunderstand the sin, it can put you in a terrible place where you feel like you're hopeless and you're just going to die and you're going to be accursed and abandoned by God. That is a dangerous way to think. And let's think through this more carefully. So I want to say this clearly. If you are repenting of your sin today, you hate your sin, you're repenting of your sin, and you are trusting in Jesus as Lord, Savior, and treasure of your life, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. If you are right now clinging to Jesus for salvation, you have not committed the sin. You are, you are not the person that this text is referring to at all. In fact, I want to say, if you are deeply concerned that you may have committed this sin and you desperately don't want to have committed it and you desperately want Jesus, you have not committed this sin. At least every indication would say you have not committed this sin because the mark of someone who's committed this sin is an outright, willful, knowing, clear, continual rejection of Jesus Christ and all that He stands for and actually calling His ministry satanic. That's what this sin looks like. Let me read some definitions here from some, some theologians. Kevin DeYoung, quote, he defines the sin this way, a conscious, clear, consistent repudiation of Christ by those who should know better. A constant, excuse me, a conscious, clear, consistent repudiation of Christ by those who should know better. Does that sound like Pharaoh a little bit? Conscious, clear, consistent, but he should know better? Uh, Listen to this, another theologian, it's a specific, active, and final choice to declare the person and work of Jesus as being demonic in origin, to call the Spirit's work through Jesus demonic 
is the unforgivable sin. It's a hardened evaluation of Jesus' work as being demonic in origin. Let me, uh, let me just mention a couple things. The sin is not just for the sake of clarity. I'm getting some help from other theologians on this real quick. Number one, some people think the unforgivable sin is committing a really bad sin, like adultery or murder or denying Christ under pressure. That's, that's, some people teach that, that it's a committing a serious sin, like adultery, murder, or denying Christ under pressure. I want to say that cannot be the unforgivable sin. Are you ready? This is pretty easy. Did David commit murder and adultery and was he forgiven? So that's not the unforgivable sin. Next thing, did Peter under pressure deny Jesus three times? Yeah, he blasphemed. He, he's, I've never met the man. I don't know the man with cursing, calling down probably God's name to support his blasphemy against Jesus. Was he still, did he repent and was he forgiven? Yes, he did not blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Uh, Here's another thing. Number two, it is to assert what is false about the Spirit and so grieve the Spirit. This is a false definition of the, of the sin. It, it is to assert what is false about the Spirit and so grieve the Spirit. Well, let me say, can Christians grieve the Holy Spirit? Yeah, every time we sin, we grieve the Spirit in some sense, right? That's what Ephesians warns us about. And, and here's the thing. Have we all probably said something not perfectly theologically accurate about the Trinity or about the Holy Spirit at some point in our life? Probably. So does that mean we've committed the unforgivable sin? No. We're not, it's not talking about a slip of the tongue or an act of ignorance. That's not what's being described. It's referring to a clear, decisive, continual, conscious, clear-headed rejection of Jesus and calling his ministry satanic. How about this one? Is it using blasphemous language against God? Like just straight up blaspheming God? Now, I know Peter was similar, but listen to this. Paul, Saul of Tarsus. Listen to what he said about himself. 1 Timothy 1, I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He had not committed the willful, deliberate, conscious, knowing better uh, continual rejection of Jesus. He had done it out of ignorance and the Lord forgave him and the Lord saved him. How about this? Is it simply being an unbeliever until the point of death? Well, I don't want to minimize, certainly, eternal judgment is true of both cases, so I'm not minimizing that. But I don't think it's true that everyone who dies an unbeliever has committed this particular sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I think this is a special kind of unbelief, a particular kind of opposition to Jesus. Let me, let me add a verse here from Mark's gospel. He adds a little sentence. It helps us a little bit. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark adds an extra statement. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In other words, the Pharisees looked at an undisputable miracle of God. It was the finger of God. It was not satanic. Everyone had eyes to see it who could just look with an honest conscience. And the Pharisees, although the evidence is screaming at them that this is the kingdom of God, this is the finger of God, this is the Davidic king, there's the, the evidence is overpowering. Yet, even knowing that, they say, we don't care what the evidence says. He's satanic. This is a clear, conscious, continual, willful rejection of Jesus and attributing his ministry to Satan. Let me quote here Don Carson. I thought this was a helpful argument. What does Jesus mean by saying speaking a word against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but not speaking a word against the Spirit? That cannot be forgiven. Isn't that strange? Why is one forgivable and the other one not? Here's how Don Carson says it. Listen to this carefully. 
within the context of the argument, the first sin, which is speaking against the Son of Man, Jesus, the first sin is rejection of the truth of the gospel, but there may be repentance after someone initially rejects the gospel, right? How many of us rejected the gospel at first and later believed? But the second sin, blaspheming the Spirit, is rejection of the same truth of the gospel, but in full awareness that that is exactly what one is doing, thoughtfully, willfully, and self-consciously rejecting the work of the Spirit, even though there can be no other explanation of Jesus' exorcisms than that. Now, I know you don't wish I had 20 more minutes. I wish I had 20 more minutes. Uh, let, me, let me just say a couple things quickly here. You may wonder about uh, the, the book of Hebrews has these apostasy texts. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, Hebrews 10. There are these infamous apostasy texts that say things like, uh, it is impossible to restore these to, again to repentance. Uh, there's this, this terrifying sin. And Hebrews 10 uh, speaks of uh, one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and outraged the Spirit of grace. And because they sin willfully, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. And then there's one in First John 5, verse 16, that speaks of, sin that does not lead to death, you should pray for that person. Then he says, there is sin that leads to death. I don't say that you should pray for that person. What? There is sin that leads to death. I don't say to pray for that person, John says, but there's sin that doesn't lead to death. You should pray for them that they're restored. I think it's, it's hard to prove, but I think that those three texts are probably describing, probably describing the same thing. And I think it's not identical with blasphemy the Holy Spirit. I think it overlaps with so stick with me here for the last couple moments. It's a little complicated, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up in a, in a moment. I think very often, not always, blasphemy of the Spirit is committed by people who once called themselves Christians. Now, we can never know for sure when someone has crossed this line of where they can't come back. We should never act like we know for sure that they can't come back. Prodigals often what? They often come home. So, so we should never say this person, you know, my uncle rejected the faith when he was 15. There's no chance he's coming back. He certainly is blaspheming the Spirit. Don't, don't think like that. We don't know that for sure. How do you know for sure if he's crossed the line? I think you should pray for him that he come back and pray until there is no more breath. Pray until there is no more hope at all. So, so don't give up on people, but I do think it is still possible for someone to commit this sin who used to call themselves a Christian. I don't think they lose their salvation. I think that these are people who, with full knowledge and full understanding of the gospel, spit on it and trample it underfoot and say, I want nothing to do with that demonic trash. I am done with that. And they run away from Christ. And there is a line somewhere when apostasy like that happens, where Hebrews says there's a line somewhere out there where it becomes impossible for that person to be restored to Christ. It becomes impossible. That's what Hebrews 6 says. There is no longer a sacrifice for sin. Once they've trampled that one underfoot, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And 1 John says there's a sin that ultimately leads to eternal death, I think he means. A sin that ultimately leads there. Now, let me give an illustration. I get this from Kevin DeYoung. He uses uh, frostbite as an illustration. I've never heard exactly this version. This is helpful. So just think about it. when it's really cold, you're outside and you're not wearing appropriate clothes or gloves or a jacket, and it's really cold, and it begins how? You get the pain in your fingers and hands, and it starts throbbing. And if time goes on and it's cold enough, your, your hands maybe start to turn colors, they start to get darker, purple kind of color, and you look around at other people who are bundled up, and they're wearing gloves, and they're wearing jackets, and they've got all the things on that they need, and they're looking at you saying, hey, you should put on some more clothes, or you should go inside, and you say, ah, I don't need that, I'm fine. And if continuing long enough in that state, what begins to happen is when frostbite begins, what happens to the pain? The pain begins to lessen. 
the pain begins to go away. And at a certain point down the road, as the hands are literally beginning to decay, the person feels nothing. There's no pain anymore. There's no reason to put on the gloves and the jacket. I feel fine. That is a picture of what this kind of sin ultimately looks like. It's where you grow callous to Jesus, bored with the Bible. I just want to move on and talk about anything else. And over time, it's almost as though the nerves start to die. And the conscience starts to become, what, iron. It just becomes, the conscience becomes uh, to where you can no longer feel. And as time goes on, you're living entirely apart from Jesus, knowingly and willfully, and you just don't care. If that, if you feel any of that, now listen, I'm not saying anyone here here has committed that sin of, of blasphemy, but here's the warning that I think we need to all, every one of us needs to take this part to heart. If you sense within you a dullness and a callousness growing over time and a desire truly to turn entirely away from the Christian faith, if you say, I'm just tired of this, it's not giving me joy, I want really nothing to do with it, I'm, I'm done putting up the show, I just want to walk out the door and never come back. If you feel those temptations begin inside of you, I want you to know that is a pathway that leads to eternal death and destruction. And ultimately, a willful, chosen, full-faced rejection continually until death of the gospel of Christ and attributing it to demonic, the demonic realm, that ultimately leads to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit for which there is no forgiveness because the person who commits it doesn't want to be forgiven anymore. They don't feel the need. They don't feel the desire for Jesus. There is nothing left. They've rejected him. They've, they've spit on him. They've trampled him. They want nothing more to do with him. And at that point, somewhere, there's a line that's crossed and there is no coming back. So may that be true that none of us go down that road. And if we feel any inkling to even begin moving down that road, may we take it with total seriousness and fight against it by God's grace. And let's not miss this last thing. Verse 31, one more time. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven but this one. Don't miss the first half of that verse. Every blasphemy short of this full-on rejection of Jesus Every other blasphemy, every other sin can be forgiven in Christ if we simply return from our sin, repent, and put our faith in His finished work for us. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, there are many ways in which this text could potentially apply to us. God, I pray again for prodigals that we know that we would not give up hope. As Spurgeon said, as long as there is breath in the prodigal's lungs, there is hope for salvation. So God, help us not to give up hope on anyone, no matter how lost they may seem. But God, I pray we would take the warning of this text with total seriousness. If there is something growing within us that is beginning to disdain the biblical Jesus, to want to leave him and to reject him wholesale into a kind of apostasy, God, help us to fight that with all that we have. And I pray you would open our eyes afresh to the glory and the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. God, for areas in which we have failed, like Peter denying his Lord and going out and weeping bitterly, or like David with his famous adultery and murder, God, I pray that if there is sin in our life, we would not despair, as John Bunyan struggled with. We would not despair, but that we would run to you. We would race to the cross, and we would know that there is a living Jesus who still makes alive dead sinners and still forgives struggling saints and still 
renews strength to those who are weak and does not break a bruised reed and will not quench a faintly burning wick. So God, I pray we would race to you. We would fall down before you. We would beg for your mercy and grace and that we would not grow callous and numb to who you are and what you've done in Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.